0: So, 2 Peter 1, uh, I will read the first four verses. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's Holy Word. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. And here is the text that we will meditate on. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our gracious God. We come to you and we ask for your help now in the preaching of the word, that the servant of God who preaches would be able to point the people of God to these exceeding great and precious promises, that uh, they would see and perceive something of the rich treasure that is their birthright in the new birth. And only the spirit of the living God can do this. So may the spirit be operative in the preaching of the word now. And we pray that every heart here, especially those who have never been touched by the promise of the gospel, might have the promise received into their hearts this day, that they would treasure Christ and him crucified, and that they would see eternal life that is laid before us in the scripture is the greatest treasure of all. And so, Father, we pray now that as we come to the word of God, that unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, the grace would be given that I should preach among your congregation, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we ask this for his sake. Amen. Well, in the morning, we saw, or Jesus showed us, that we cannot discern really what is truly precious, or what ought to be truly precious. We are more prone to lust, we heard, after mere bread, than treasure eternal life. That's how askew, right? It begins there. That's how askew our evaluation of what truly matters is. Well, our text here today unlocks a a desirous, a desirous treasury. Great treasure to be desired, but that is sorely, sorely neglected by us. A treasure that far excels the earthly wealth of Solomon, or today, boys and girls, someone like Elon Musk. This treasury is, is called exceeding great and precious and they are the promises of God. And they are meant to be our treasury. There are promises in the Bible designed to help you persevere. There are promises in the Bible that keep your eyes fastened upon heaven. There are promises that preach to you that in Christ, you of all people are the richest on the earth. What you find In this treasury of divine promises, and I don't know if you remember, but even in our call to worship, right, in a few verses, you had promise after promise after promise. And these ought to be glorious to us, because in the Bible, we find promises for endurance, promises for sanctification, promises for the utter victory of Christ, promises for eternal life, promises for our covenant children, on and on and on. Whatever circumstances you find yourself in, faith is given a promise to treasure and lay hold of. You must know them better, right? You must know this treasury better than your stock portfolio. You must look at the pledges, the promises of God, more than you look at your positions in the market. You must treasure it more than your bank account. And by faith, you must embrace them when you have need of them and cling to them all the more, especially when things seem impossible. There must be a promise from God for this circumstance, you must say. And so that these promises would become precious to you, we consider 2 Peter 1 verse 4. And our theme here will be simple, which is to lay hold of God's precious promises. Lay hold of God's precious promises because we are guilty of neglecting them. And of course, we often find ourselves in distress. We'll consider this under three heads. First, their preciousness admired. Second, the treasury opened. And third, their use understood. First, their preciousness admired. This heading arises out of verse 4 straight away. Wherefore, given unto us are exceeding great and precious promises. Now, this morning we saw how Jesus Christ can multiply uh, a mere word, or bread and fishes, right? And give you baskets overflowing. This is one of those verses in the Word of God. Every time i preached on this text, I have to cut and edit my sermon down considerably. Because there is so much here in this one verse that Christ will use to fill your soul. And so that you might know what a divine promise is, let me give you a definition by a better man than me. Do you know, child of God, what a promise from God is? And I think if you look at this definition given by William Spursto, I think it will greatly, greatly cheer your heart. A promise is a declaration of God's will, wherein he signifies what particular good things he will freely bestow and the evils that he will remove let me say that again, a declaration of God's will, wherein he signifies what particular good things he will freely bestow and the evils that he will remove. In that definition, let's begin here, that a promise is a good thing from God. And it is a particular good thing in every promise. They are pledges of his goodness in concrete and particular ways. You know, Christ is not as a man who merely says, right, he says to his wife on the way out of the door, I love you, and then sort of neglects her, right? He doesn't have a sort of general goodness like that, but Christ showers his bride with particular good things. Beloved, with the promises of God, what you can say is God is good to me, and then if somebody asks how, you can point to the promises in the scripture, this is how God is good to me. This is... This word and these promises in the word show how God is good to me, a sinner, in particular ways that he has promised to be good to me. Then in line with Spursto's definition that they are freely bestowed upon us, freely, right, given, verse 4 says that they are given unto us. They are given unto us. This follows the theme earlier in Second Peter, but here you see that the, given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. In the Greek there, the language is of an official bequest. Uh, he freely bestows. It's the king freely giving these things. And they're of grace. They are not earned. They are not merited. You cannot earn his promises. They are gifts that he gives to you out of his goodness and love. Then Spursto reminded us they are the will and purpose of God. And this makes them especially precious, <laughs> don't they? A promise from him is his will for you, believer. Nobody twisted his arm to give you these promises. This is what he freely, out of his own heart, wants to give you. And you know, that's a precious thought. When you hold a promise out of the Bible, especially those that seem oh so extravagant, you say, this is God's will for me. This is what he wants for me. This is what he wants to bless me with. And so however impossible the promise might seem, we say, glory to God, he wants to give it to me. And that right there is a tremendous aid for the cheer of your heart. And that's where then we have to understand next, if this is God's will for us, where do we find it, right? Do we imagine promises that he has never given to us? No, we find it in the word of God, right? You find the treasury of promises in the word of God and only in the word of God. This is one of the problems we have. We don't open the word of God and we don't search it out, especially not searching it out for promises, But if you had done what I had done with the call of worship, right, every day in your Bible reading, you would be blown away, utterly blown away by what goodness God has promised and pledged to give you. And your Bible reading would not be a chore, but you would say, let me treasure what the word of God signifies here. You will find promises in the Bible throughout It's helpful for you, though, as you sort of sift through the Bible, and you shouldn't sift through the Bible only for promises, but as you handle the word rightly, you will find promises distinct from the commandments of God. The commandments of God are our duty, and you'll find them distinguished from God's threatenings. So they're not properly threatenings, When they are considered promises for us, those are uh, the God's threatenings are uh, what keep us in the fear of God. But his promises are those gifts that he promises to give us. So they're distinct from commandments and they're distinguished from threatenings. They are their own species, so to speak. And um, now as we kind of put that definition, not behind us, but uh, as we have considered that definition. Now, let's consider what the action of saving faith does when it gleans a promise from the word. What does saving faith do with a promise, or what ought it to do, which sometimes we neglect to do? Our confession says that saving faith embraces, embraces the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. And so what saving faith does is it takes a promise, and it grabs a hold of it. And it brings it into the heart, and it embraces it. That's warm language, isn't it? embraces the promises of God. And all I could think of here was Simeon at the temple, right? Jesus comes and he embraces Jesus. But before he actually embraced Jesus physically, Simeon in his heart had already embraced Jesus by promise, hadn't he? Right? This Jesus is promised to me. This Jesus is promised to Israel, right? And so he had already warmed his heart with the promise of Christ and God brought Jesus, just as he said, into the world, and he was able to embrace him physically. And that is how we must look at the promises of God. They are meant to be embraced in the heart, in the mind, even before they are possessed by us. And an essential quality of saving faith is that it embraces the promises of God. Because faith that justifies is faith that embraces God's promises. We often forget that. But listen to how Abraham's faith is defined in Romans 4, verses 20, 22. We remember this text often for it teaches justification by faith alone. And listen to about Abraham. He staggered not at what? The promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And listen to this. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore what? It was imputed to him. For righteousness. What's this essential quality of saving faith? It believes the promise of God. It embraces it. It is persuaded that what God has promised, he is also able to perform. This is an essential property of faith that imputes righteousness. It doesn't stagger at the promise of God. And consider, boys and girls, how staggering the promise Abraham received was. Think of God's word to Abraham who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. This was an incredible promise he received, wasn't it, beloved? Right? Hard to believe it could ever come to pass. I am as good as dead and my wife's womb is, is closed and she is old. But Abraham's faith was persuaded, regardless of what he saw and he knew, that whatever God promises, he is also able to perform. And that's the kind of saving faith that imputes righteousness to the believer, friends. And that's the kind of faith that we must have, not just for the gospel, but in every promise from the Lord. Faith feeds on the promises of God. Saving faith gives us the trust that God has the power to perform his promise. After all, who is the guarantor of the promises? Who makes good on them? The object of our faith, right? Jehovah, the Lord God Almighty, possessor of heaven and earth. Numbers 23.19 reminds us, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Shall he not make good on everything he promises, believer? Is that not an essential part of the character of God? Do you think anything he promises to you will not come to pass? Now that's a bit of a rhetorical question because sometimes we are plagued with doubt. And the idea of the question is to remove the doubt. Do you think anything he promises to you will not come to pass? If so, you have work to do with God. You have to believe that whatever he promises will come to pass. And let us remember, lest we neglect this bare fact, that the gospel is a promise. Abraham saw it that way. We must see it that way. It is codified by way of covenant. It is a promise and a pledge from the Lord. And there is such power, beloved, especially as you witness or when ministers preach. There is such power in presenting the gospel that way, not just to your own soul, but to others. Think about how simply and beautifully, right, God expresses it as a promise. What's the promise? Romans ten thirteen. All who call upon the name of the Lord, what? Shall be saved. What power there is in that promise, friends. Often when I preach the gospel, I just hold it forth as a promise to the lost, because it is. It's as simple as that. God's promises: if you call on Jesus Christ by faith, you shall be saved. No ifs, ands, or buts. No maybes. You shall. There's that word, and I'm going to come to it in the scriptures. Shall. That's a promise from God. This is how Paul ministers the gospel in Acts 16. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou, what, might? No, thou shalt be saved. What is that but a promise? All, all the minister has to do is say, this is the promise of God. Whatever condition you are in, call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and it's not maybe God will save you. God will save you. That's His promise. Do you believe that promise yourself, friend? That if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. You know, I have ministered this this as a promise and I have had to press it as a promise with so many who have been burdened with the thought that they cannot be saved. More than a few times, they have felt the burdens of their evils. Their conscience has screamed and testified against it as, as conscience must. But I was able to hold forth promises such as in Hebrews ten seventeen, And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Isn't that beautiful? To tell a sinner in Christ Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. That's just not a platitude, is it? That's a promise given by the Almighty. And and so many, their conscience has been eased and they have come to the Lord in that way. That I as a sinner can come to the Lord and my sins and iniquities, he promises to wash away. So if the gospel is a promise, perhaps what is most precious about the promises is who purchased them. I said, Jehovah is the guarantor of them, and that's true. But he did it by sending the Son of God in the world to purchase them. And so we would say Jesus is the meritorious cause of all God's promises. Second Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God in him, meaning Jesus, are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. You now, as I prayed in the uh, before preaching, the treasury of God's promises are part of what the Bible calls the unsearchable riches of Christ all purchased by him and his blood. And solemnly, we glorify God for this. We glorify Jesus for this. He has given them all to us in his death. He bequeaths them all to us. They were written into the New Testament as part of our inheritance, Hebrews nine fifteen through 17. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the what? Listen to this, promise. Of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead, otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Friends, the promises of God are part of, you might call it this, the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. That in his death, he purchased them all for you, purchased them on the cross. And how much more precious they must be when we look at every promise and say, Jesus Christ died to give me this. Jesus Christ died so that I might have this promise, that it might be fulfilled as well. And so not only is the substance, the letter of the promise precious, but the one who died to give it to me is precious as well. And we see how much more precious this treasury must be, bought by the blood of Christ, and as Christ has made good on these promises, right? He is the one who fulfills them. He is the one who earns them. He is the one who merits them. There's nothing in us to merit them. There's no way to buy them. He has done it. And so we can cash in every single promise of God. When we have a promise of God in our hands, so to speak, we look unto Jesus and say to God, in effect, Jesus earned this. And so I, I cash it in, God. Would you be true to this promise? And beloved, brethren, each of you, as you inherit the whole Christ, there isn't a part of Christ that isn't for every believer. You inherit all the promises of God, all of you. Every Christian possesses the whole Christ and so possesses all his promises. He does not say, praise God, some believers are promised to get his presence. Okay, maybe the ministers get or the elders get his presence. No, all of his people have his promised presence. He does not say some believers are promised eternal life. All of you are promised it. And when you sit at the Lord's table, of course, you sup and drink of the whole Christ. And he has said what? This cup is the new Testament in my blood. And so every time you take of the communion cup, right? What you're doing is you are saying, I am a partaker of my eternal inheritance. And all that is Christ's is mine. And we have to look at the cup that way. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Don't you all partake of the same cup? You do. And so you all possess what he died to provide for you. And for you who believe, never forget these promises are precious for your assurance and your perseverance. When your faith falters and you need assurance, will you take up the promises, beloved? What did God promise? You I, I need assurance. My sins have plagued me. What do I look at? I look at promises like, Jesus Christ has promised me, look unto me and be saved. And I say, I have looked unto Christ. So what's the, the promise? I am saved. right? I, I, I treasure the promise of God because it's not by my works, it's by his promise. And when you need perseverance, your faith must feed on the promises. And what staggers the mind so much is that our Savior persevered in this way. Do you ever think on that? That our Savior persevered by looking to the promises. And so united to him, you must follow him. Think of Hebrews 12 too. Who? That is Jesus. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set, set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy that was set before him? Weren't they promises given to him? Why does he know that there is joy set before him? Because the word of God is promised to our Savior that beyond your agony, there is joy promised to you before the world began. Think of the promises he clung to as he endured the cross. Here is one. There are so many. He knew the word of God better than any. What of Isaiah fifty-three eleven through 12? And this is of the suffering servant. And listen to the word shall. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. Those are promises given to Jesus Christ, aren't they? And there are other promises he clung to. Psalm 22, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Psalm 72, etc. I think if you know have a familiarity with those psalms, you see his promises. But here's the thing, right? If the Savior endured by way of promise, how much more do we have need to endure in that way? Hebrews 10, verse 36. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. You have need of patience to attain to the promise. Now, It's interesting, our verse, and I wish I had time to unlock this and unpack this. But it says that by these great and precious promises, ye might be partakers of the divine nature. And what that means is not that you become God in any way, but you become like Jesus Christ. You become the very character of God. And so as you look to the promises, as the Savior looked to the promises, and you united to him by faith, you become more like Christ when you cling to the promises of God. And so you think of all of these promises in the Bible, and there's one suit, and we'll look at that in the next head. But whenever, let's say, for instance, if you need assurance, I'll come back to that theme of assurance. Like if you doubt, beloved, that God is at work in you presently, is there not a promise for you? Isn't there? Do you know where to go? Let's just say, you say, is God at work in me? what do I do? I take up something like Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise, isn't it? And so in those moments, in those times where you despair, you say, God began a good work in me. And he will bring it to completion. And I cling to the promise the word says you have the warrant, believer, to be confident in such things. If grace has begun in you, grace will take you to glory. And so these precious promises keep your affections heavenward. This is a use. Our Savior said this, right? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Matthew six twenty one. And these are great and precious promises meant to be a treasury. And so if your treasure are the promises of God, your mind will be set on heavenly things. You can say then, right, as you have this treasury of promises, what are all the lands and goods of this world that I have lost for Jesus' sake compared to the promises he has given me? When my Savior has promised me what? A room in heaven that he is preparing for me, where I will dwell with him forever. What does it matter that I have lost all things on this earth? And I have a deed for it, and I have it deposited to me in my heart by the Holy Spirit of God. And I say, what does it matter then that I lose these things? It keeps my affections heavenward. You will long for your heavenly citizenship and not your earthly one. And how precious that would be to you if you would believe such things. Now, the promises are varied. They are many. Some are for this life. Some are from the life to come. And that's also what makes them precious to us. That in every providence to the child of God, every trial, every difficulty, you can find a promise from God that is suited for you. You know, the Erskines, you might know them, the seceders, uh, they felt part of the blessing of God in their ministry is because they ministered God's promises. They felt that this is why the Lord so richly blessed their ministry. Ralph Erskine said that for fishers of men, the promises are as fishing hooks. They're like fishing hooks to hook souls. And as varied as the fishes of the sea are, he says, there are hooks of promise in the gospel ministry. He rhetorically asked the question, tell me a case where the promise does not reach. Do any of you think you're beyond the promise of God in any particular circumstance? Uh, he says there's a promise suited for every circumstance that the Lord, right, has given unto us, as we, we read, he has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, in verse 3. And, and so Ralph Erskine said, he asked the question, do you say I am a poor, insignificant worm? Is that where your heart is today? He said there's a hook of promise for you in Isaiah forty-one fourteen. Fear not, thou worm Jacob, and I will help thee. He asks, are you poor and needy? He says, there's a hook, just three verses down, Isaiah 41, 17. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Two precious promises, three verses apart. And he says, if one promise does not fit you, go to another. Isn't it beautiful? I mean, we don't look at these things as promises, but they are meant to take into our heart and treasure. And I I would say, as the children of God in Christ... Your identity is actually tied to the promises. I don't know if you remember this, but Galatians 4:28 says, "Now we, brethren, speaking to Christians, as Isaac was, are the children of promise." This is our identity in fact, and yet we neglect our identity that we are children of promise. Right? That's who we are as the people of God. We live on promises from God. And so, they are your birthright in the new birth believer. They belong to you. They are yours. And you must always see yourself. I am a child of promise, a promised savior, a promised eternal inheritance, a promised eternity before the joys and blessings that come in the presence of God. Time really would fail me to tell you of all that makes the promises precious. So for the sake of time that we might learn to see their value, we will, in our second heading, look at the treasury opened and look at a variety of promises. So the treasury opened. There is an entire treasury of promises in this very large Bible. Look at how big it is. This is a very big Bible, 66 books, as we heard this morning, and very many number of verses and chapters. And so I'm going to breeze through a few, just a few promises that you might get a sense and a taste of how varied these promises are, that you would be drawn to your Bible and that you would seek out these promises yourself, that you would say in your heart, yes, how exceeding great and precious. I admit that the word of God is true. These are great and precious promises in the Bible. And so let me seek out the scripture and find more. Let's first turn. To the gospel promise itself. This is the crown jewel of all the promises. Whatever promises they are, this is the chief. Jesus promised, Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. John eleven twenty six. This is the chief thing, isn't it, as you heard this morning in the Bread of Life Discourse. What a promise that is. Simply by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never die. But it's not enough to say you you believe it abstractly, right? Not enough to actually, I should say, to know it abstractly. You must believe it. What did Jesus say? Believest thou this? That's what saving faith does, isn't it? Is it believes that. Jesus inquired. And so I inquire. He does, really. Do you believe this? You must. And if you do believe this, will you praise God? You are going to glory. And you will never die. Can you not rejoice, beloved, over this? Can you not say, what a wonderful thing it is, O my soul, that I will never die? You see, are you more happy that he might be giving you bread continuously as we heard this morning? Where is your happiness found? Now maybe you labor for the Lord Jesus Christ, so here's another promise. And maybe your labors for Christ are pressing heavy on you, whether you're an ordained officer or you're laboring for Christ wherever you are in whatever situation, even for your own family. And do you feel at times that your labors are in vain, though you have done them for the Lord? What's the promise in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, forasmuch as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You see that that is a promise from God. Do you believe when you labor for the Lord that your labor is not in vain? You're not allowed to doubt it. That's a promise. You are not to be faithless, but believing. But what is the use of the promise? So many of the promises have a use right there attached. It is to persevere in the work of the Lord. Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because your labor is never in vain and that is God's promise and pledge and saving faith embraces it. So beloved brethren, abound in the work of the Lord in your various callings. You labor by faith in the promise and not by faith of, here's the word, perceived fruitfulness. God has promised you are fruitful. God has promised that your labor is not in vain. And I know church officers very much need this promise. You know, you think about men who labor and they, maybe they labor for marriages. Maybe they counsel uh, left, right all day. And marriages are falling apart even when their counsel is given. They are to say, no matter, I counsel anyway. Is there very little fruit in the preaching? Never matter, I will preach anyhow because I am told my labor is not in vain in the Lord. Beloved, is the love that you pour out on others now, whether you're a church officer or not, in others, in laboring for them and their soul, has it not been returned to you? Will you say with Paul, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Why? Because I have a promise from God that my labor and my love is not in vain. Do any of you feel crushed under many burdens as though you are about to break? Is there not a promise? Do you know where to go to find a promise from God? How about Matthew twelve twenty, which is citing Isaiah? A bruised reed shall he not break and a smoking flax shall he not quench. Have you ever looked on that as a promise? a sure, steadfast promise that God holds himself to. And I think if you look back on your life, believer, with all the burdens you have carried, and every moment where it seemed like you were about to break and snap and your flame was about to go out, you may have been bruised, but the Lord has always kept you from breaking. The Lord has kept you from being quenched. You know the promise is true. You are sitting right here, and you must believe it the next time around you feel the same way. Along those lines, do you need power to persevere? Here is a promise for you from Isaiah 40, 29 through 31. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. You're to take up this promise from God, aren't you? And wait upon the Lord. You know, some seasons, my mind almost seizes up with all the things that are before me. I can feel drained and overwhelmed and even faint. So I often take this text in Isaiah 40, and I pray it. And I have to believe that God is no liar, that what he has promised, he is also able to perform that he is good and he does good to me, that his Holy Spirit will miraculously renew my strength as I grow in dependence upon the Lord. I am not allowed to doubt these things because this is a promise. And the Lord so often rejuvenates my soul and my spirit and here I am before you once again. Well, what if you are laboring in tears, brethren? How often do you take up the promise of God? They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. We consider this at the Mid-Cities Worship Service, Psalm 126, verse 5. You are to believe it, that one day you will reap in joy. In fact, as is said, right, I believe it was Spurgeon that said this, that sowing is often best done in tears. Tears over souls, and the Lord blesses such tears. Do you believe that? In fact, do you have a promise associated with sowing with levity? You can't find it in the Bible. The promise is given to sowing with tears, with your heart in the labor and your heart uh, causing your face to be wet with many tears. There's a promise associated with that. And is that not a motivation then as you take that promise, you embrace it? Is that not a motivation to persevere with tear-streaked faces? What does the world and the devil tempt you? Which is that if you face discouragement and the tears come, what is the evil thought there? Stop. Stop laboring just give up, don't press on. But the Lord says so in tears, for you will reap in joy. That is what we do with the promises. Are you troubled in your own soul over your own sin? What promise can you take up? What promise can you take? There's so many when your soul is troubled. How about who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he what? delighteth in mercy. Micah 7:18. And see sometimes gospel promises are the hardest ones to embrace, aren't they? Because they are the most extravagant ones of all. But you have listen to this, no right to disbelieve them at all. You have no right So when you feel so unclean after sin, you need to take hold of a promise by faith. Here's a simple one. Even our boys and girls know. First John 1, 7 through 9. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, here it is. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness. That's His promise, isn't it? That the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sin if we confess our sins. And all the uncleanness of sin is put away. That's a promise. Are you beleaguered by temptation to sin? Will you believe in another promise? 1 Corinthians 10.13 There hath no con, uh, no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. This one is so hard for our flesh at times. But God says, he promises whatever temptation you find yourself in, that he has not given you a temptation above that you are able to bear, but will with the temptation, he will make a way of escape for you. There is absolutely no reason anyone has to sin, any child of God has to sin when there is temptation before us. And we must believe that by way of promise and take the way of escape. Do you need boldness and courage because you fear being unpopular for taking a stand for the word of God and how much more so we are going to need boldness and courage just to stand on the doctrines of basic Christianity. You need a promise from God that as you stand for the Lord, the Lord will be with you and stand with you. And that is everything to the believer. What did he tell Joshua? Have not I commanded thee Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Joshua 1.9. Now you might be tempted to say, Pastor, that was for Joshua. Well, the Apostle Paul picks up that very same promise and applies it to all believers. Hebrews 13.5-6. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And what's the use of that promise? So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Right We have the promise of God's presence. do you know that? You and you don't feel it. that God is there with you in the furnace, right? And what does He say? The use of that knowledge, that promise is that we might boldly say, "The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do to me." What a wonderful promise that is. See, this is what faith embraces. our, our, our eyes don't see it, but our faith embraces the promise of God that what He has promised. I am persuaded he is also able to perform. How about when you are afflicted in soul or body? What do we remember? Psalm thirty-four, nineteen. last year I preached on this. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but what? The Lord delivereth him out of them all. Two promises in one verse, right? The first promise you're likely not happy with. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But brother and sister, you should be cheered by that verse that front half, right? When you are suffering many afflictions, what you say is, oh, God has promised that the righteous will suffer suffer many afflictions. There's nothing unusual about me. There's nothing strange about me that I am suffering many afflictions. And so I look at the promise and I go, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Praise God. And the second part of that is also a comfort. But the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Not out of them some, out of them all the world has poisoned our soul it teaches us it is not it is our due right to not be afflicted but the lord gives us a contrary promise and has promised deliverance even if your deliverance is awaiting on the promise job clung to in job 19:25 through 27 for i know that my redeemer liveth and that he shall There's that word shall, right? And that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself. And mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Now there is a promise to hang your soul on when you are afflicted. So that you can say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, because I have embraced his promises. Okay, there are other promises as well. Has discouragement over the state of the church or the nation impacted you? What do you do when you open the book? You find the promise of the working of Christ's dominion. Psalm seventy two eleven, 11. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. What a wonderful thing that is to believe. This is a promise given that all kings shall fall down before him. Faith lays hold of it and embraces the promise. And when we are troubled, our soul is set at ease. Lastly, on the deathbed, as your soul, as your faith is in Christ, and doubts might come, and doubts do come to so many even staunch believers, what you need to do is you need to take up the promise. And you need to sing the promise in the Psalter. Psalm 1715, as for me, I will Behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. See, faith embraces that. And when you think on that promise, then not only are you not afraid of death, but you actually long to see Jesus face to face, no longer as in a glass darkly. And you say, I will now behold my Savior soon. I think I once mentioned this anecdote, but at Presbytery, um, I want to say it was last year, but uh you know there was an elder giving a report on his congregation and he was talking about a man who was struck with uh, I believe it was cancer but he was told that in the operation he would have only uh um he would have a uh, 10% chance of survival and the man survived he said when he woke up he was sorely disappointed because he wasn't like the world does looking at uh that 10% chance of survival he was looking at the 90% chance he would be with Jesus And he was cheered by that, right? That soon my time in this world would come to an end and I will be in the blessed presence of God. That's what happens, right? And what will eternity be like when you awake? There's another exceeding great and precious promise. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. That's a promise. There are so many promises in the Bible and they're so varied. Look at the Beatitudes. This morning we were talking about those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be filled, You can look at the Psalms as we have, you can look at Isaiah, you can look throughout the scripture, through the gospels, the revelation, and you will find exceeding great and precious promises. And so for your own help, I would encourage you to pick up a book like Edward Lay's A Treatise on the Divine Promises. And in the beginning of the work, he has a chart of promises in the Bible, categorized by books of the Bible. Now, on a popular level, you also have Spurgeon's Daily Devotional, The Checkbook of the Bank of Faith. Now, only Spurgeon could come up with a a title like that, right? The checkbook of the bank of faith, which helps us to set our affections heavenward as we look to the treasury of promises. Now, I will mention, though, that there is a conditional aspect to the promises. While the gospel promise is even for unbelievers, in a sense, it is conditional. They must believe it, right, to have the promise. But the gospel, if you don't believe the promise, you won't have it. And without believing the gospel promise and being converted to Christ, you cannot lay hold of any promise from God. They are all in Christ. And so we can't have platitudes to those who are outside of Christ and saying, well, God promises this. Yes, but only in Christ. Instead, all you have are the threatenings of eternal hellfire if you're not in Christ. And so this is the first condition necessary for using the promises. You must have faith in Jesus. But sometimes there are other conditions too, and you are to take note of them. For instance, you want your heart and soul revived. Listen to the condition in Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also, and listen to this, that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. To have that revival you must humble yourself and be contrite, beloved. Isn't that the use there? So you take up the promise afterward, and you say, revive my soul and revive my heart, O God, as I come before you in humility and in contrition of my sin and repentance. So as you look at the promises, see if there are conditions attached to them. Also, there are some promises that are specific for a specific person. We thought on that with Joshua, but we saw it was a general promise, or a particular place, You cannot take them up for yourself because they are not general in nature. Uh, But Paul, as we heard in Hebrews, took up a promise to Joshua and said, no, this applies to all of us. So I don't have time to go into all of that. Um, Maybe another sermon might be beneficial there. But with that, let's finally consider the use understood with the time remaining. And really what I want to address here is how we can use the promises effectively in our exercise of godliness and faith. The first thing we must do is we must Meditate on them, and they must become our treasure. Have you ever thought on it? I'll go back to it, because it's marvelous. It becomes more marvelous to me every day. How marvelous it is that you will never die. I don't think we think on these things. I don't think of how marvelous it is, that the moment my breath leaves my body, I will stand before my precious Savior. Mary took promises, didn't she, from God. And we read she kept them, and what did she do? She pondered them in her heart. Luke 2:19. See, that's what we're meant to do. We're to take promises and ponder them in our heart. We're to meditate on them. And that's how they become treasure to us as we roll them over in our mind and in our heart. Wow, what a wonderful promise this is. Second, you are to plead them to the Lord. They are potent arguments to use in your prayers. Because God will hold himself to what he has promised. And your exercise of faith is to bring them to your remembrance in prayer before the Lord. You say and you pray, Lord, thou hast said that those that wait on thee are given strength. And I cling to that promise, O Lord. Give what you promise and answer me. This is very different from what the disciples demand of Jesus. Because this is actually what Jesus has said he is going to give you. In times of temptation to sin, when they arise up against us, you say, thou hast promised, Lord, there is a way of escape. Open thou mine eyes to take it and give me the strength to flee. You pray, O Father, I am at my breaking point, but thou hast promised to thy servant a bruised reed I will not break and a smoking flax I will not quench. Third, patiently wait on the promises. This is a matter of faith. While the Lord makes promises, he doesn't always promise the time in which they will come. Consider Abraham and Sarah. They were promised Isaac. He was a child of promise, as we are, of course. But they waited a long time. What was their sin in trying to speed along the promise, wasn't it? Do you desire a promise? That is good. But do not be discouraged by the length of time it takes. You need to wait patiently on the Lord for the promise to come. The Lord told Habakkuk, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. That's a beautiful verse Habakkuk two three, in which we understand how to wait on the promises of God. The promise will come in God's appointed hour. He says, it seems to tarry, but it will not tarry. And as we think on the qualities of saving faith, do you remember what the very next verse is? Habakkuk 2.4. As he said, it will not tarry, but the just shall live by his faith. Once again, this is the substance of saving faith. It believes the promise of God. This is it. This is it. The promise will come, brother, and it will not tarry, sister, and you must believe it. So you must also learn to persevere looking at promises that may be afar off, even those you may never receive in this life. This is something we as a society are plagued by. And because we have come out of this society and because our society does not uh, teach us to think long term, we have this problem when it comes to the promises. One of the problems of the American system is that we only have a thought for ourselves. Our presidents think, what, four to eight years in office, and then whatever mess I make, whatever debt I have, I leave that to the next guy. right? As, so long as my poll numbers are good, well, I'll leave the mess, and what's four, eight years, really, I'll leave that for the generations to come. And we, with our short attention spans and our immediate gratification culture, we don't think of laying up promises or treasure for generations to come. We don't even think of enduring institutions in this land. So we do not even think on how to make the next generation better than ours. But we are to think biblically in these things, to labor and persevere for generations to come, and to hang on promises. Here's the thing that you will not see in this life. Hebrews 11.13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them. There is that same language, isn't it? Persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. You need to embrace the promises and persevere. By faith, draw on them as a spiritual bank. The Lord has given you this great deposit of promises. Withdraw from them often. Fifth, Consider promises more than providences. And you know, if you think about promises yet to come, so let me pause here real quick. He says, I will build my church. And he says, the knowledge of the glory of the earth, of the Lord will spread across all the earth, right? You, you are persuaded of those things. And what that does is it helps us labor today. Here we are, a very small congregation in some ways. But no matter, God has promised that his church will grow and grow and grow from a mustard seed to the greatest uh, um, uh, plant on the earth, so to speak. Greatest tree, and we believe that. And as we planted this church, we thought on generations to come, not just our generation. We look to the promise. Fifth, consider promises more than providences, because when providence seems at cross purpose to promises, we know that the Lord who gives both promise and providence never goes against promise. That is an impossibility. In hard providences, you need to look to promises as Job and Abraham and other godly men and women did. You need to look to the promise when providence seems at cross-purpose. And elders, I would say this to you here, um, we must remember that our labors are lighter when we minister promises to the people of God, to this flock. We must show them precious promises that they would not lean on us, but on Christ. You need to send them to Jesus. You cannot bear their their burdens. I cannot, but Christ can. This is a promise that we must often put before you, our people. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what's the promise. Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Marvel at such a promise and then go minister it to others. And send the congregation elders to the varied promises of the Lord as you counsel. When it comes to this congregation's children, what we need to do is we need to say, for the promise that is the gospel promise is unto you and to your children and all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Acts 2.39. In loss, how often we minister that promise, don't we? It's all we can do in grief with prodigals. We minister that promise. It's all you can do. How different then, and I want us to revel in this, people of God, how different a promise is from a platitude. You know, the world ministers platitudes. Oh, it'll be all right. That's a platitude. You ask, what's the basis that everything will be all right? I open the Bible and I have a promise from God. And I say the basis of this is God swearing an oath that what he has promised, he will also perform. And it is no platitude. You need to stop yourself from saying platitudes. And you must minister the promises of God. Use the promises frequently. That you would learn with an eye on Christ. That through patience and comfort of the scriptures. We might have hope. Especially in the promises. Well our epistle. Second Peter ends with another view to the promise of God. Chapter 3 verse 13. And I want you to see how this book is bookended. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. We are looking for a new heavens and a new earth that he has promised where righteousness dwells, brethren, where sin is no more in glory. Isn't that a wonderful thing for us who struggle with sin? That there is a time coming, a new heavens and an earth. He has promised to us where, heaven, where righteousness dwells. And that's a reminder, really. And I want you to think on this way. Not only does Second Peter end this way, but the whole Bible ends this way, with promise after promise after promise. If you go to the Revelation chapter 21, what you will find there is a slew and a series of promises. Revelation 21, 3 through 7. Listen to this as I read the word of God. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. That's a promise, isn't it? And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. That's a promise that you will receive. And there shall be no more death. That's a promise. Neither sorrow. That's a promise. Nor crying promise neither shall there be any more pain that's a promise for the former things are passed away and he that sat upon the throne said behold i make all things new and he said unto me Write, for these words are what true and faithful and he said unto me it is done i am alpha and omega the beginning and the end and i will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely that's a promise think of this morning I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. Another promise. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. That's another promise. Can we not admit? And I think perhaps the problem for us today is that we listen to those things and maybe that has not struck a chord in us. And I think that might be the biggest problem of all is that you can listen to these things And you can say, Pastor, just get on with it. And really the issue is that we don't revel and we don't marvel that these things are promised to us, brethren. And that's why we don't find our joy and hope in God. And instead we come after things that are base and um, deadly to our soul instead of the things that really have any sort of value or meaning, because our heart is not set on these things that really matter. This is why he says that by these, right, these great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, what? Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. If we lusted for the promises, we would not lust for the lusts of this world. And that's how you must see it, friends. So believers then, can you not admit that given unto us are exceeding great and precious promises? Believers, can you not believe tonight that you are the richest people in all the earth, in all of human history? For given unto you are exceeding great and precious promises in Christ. And until you make that calculation, you're going to struggle and you're going to suffer in your walk in this world. Say, I am the richest of all, because I have great and precious promises. May God help you see it this way, and may he bless this text to us. Amen. Please rise for prayer, if able. Our God and our Father, both of our texts today have chastised us, us, showing that we are slow to believe and faithless that our heart is set upon the world and that we have a little care for true treasure and true riches. We are not interested, O God, in heavenly treasure. And if our eyes were opened, we would see these things in your word as great and precious and that they would be really our spiritual hope chest and that we would open it up daily and we would marvel that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we would marvel at that, Father, instead of becoming bored by that. Help us marvel that as we are sinners, that we have a Savior who has promised to be the help of those who sin. That we have promises that say that all of our sins and iniquities you will remember no more. That to we who believe, we will never die and we will have life everlasting. Would you give us the calculation in our heart, Father, that these are the things that we must glory in and revel in. Would you do thus before we leave this place? And for those who have never heard the gospel promise that all who shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved, would this be the day they call on the name of the Lord? And whatever sins they've committed, would they see that those are no impediments to coming to the Lord, but instead he is the savior of sinners, even the chief. Bless your people now with these uh, thoughts. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.